Well, thank you so much for being here with us this weekend uh, as we are thinking about this important topic, discipleship. There really isn't much more central to the Christian life than following Jesus, and so that's what we're going to be talking about this weekend. Uh, If you don't know me, uh, I have three little boys, uh, three little boys whom I love tremendously, and uh, of course a wife, a great wife, and uh, our youngest son, his name is Jackson, and Jack is uh, an amazing little kid. Uh, He's an an interesting blend of tenderheartedness uh, and at the same time fearlessness. That's Jack, very passionate, very excited about life, and I don't know what you get excited about, but one of the things that I love in life is actually holding Jack's hand as we go to school in the morning. I mean, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there's really nothing like it. I love in the mornings before I go to work, taking Jack to school and holding his little hand as we walk towards his class. Now, here's what's happened recently. Uh, He has not wanted to hold my hand like he used to right? So it starts off the first half of kindergarten, and he's holding the hand, and he's like, yeah, daddy, of course, there's no other way to do this. And then somewhere around, like the second half of school, some kid told him that that wasn't cool anymore. And so all of a sudden, Jack starts to, as we get close to the school, pull his hand away from mine. Uh, Guys, that is not a good experience for a dad. But let me tell you this, um, going along with that, my wife Carrie, she um, recently decided to take Jack and a friend of hers and and her kids uh, to this exhibit by Compassion International, where they were showing them what it looks like to live in a third world nation. She wanted to show them, uh, my kids, uh, the the way that it looks to suffer and to experience that with them uh, in a third world nation. And so they went. And uh, she was really shocked at this event whenever uh, Jack actually went to grab for her hand. Doesn't usually do that anymore. And he gripped on. And as they walked through, she noticed that he started to grip the hand even tighter. And she said, Jack, are, are you okay? Are you scared? And as he looked at everything, he said, no, no I'm, I'm fine. I'm you know, fearless Jack, right? And so they kept on going. And as they walked a little bit further, she noticed that his hand started to, to tremble a little bit. And he started to shake. And she said, Jack, are, are you okay? Are you scared? Do you want to go anymore? And she said, he said, no, I think it'd be okay if we left now. And as they were walking out, she said, what was wrong, Jack? And she said, I, I don't know. I was thinking maybe you were going to leave me there with the other kids that like, didn't have anything. Well, in that moment, what we saw was that Jack experienced what it was like to face suffering. And uh, as brave as he was, uh, he sensed a sense of fear amidst uh, those suffering children. Well, as we were beginning this conference with this talk tonight, uh, we wanted to, to really come right out of the gate talking about a central element to discipleship. And that is this. There's a reality that if you are going to follow Jesus, that you are going to suffer. Uh, There is no uh, pass on suffering uh, when it comes to following Christ. And so uh, right here this morning, or this evening, what we're going to do is, is we're going to begin with looking at the first disciples in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 4. So if you've got your Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 4. You can use a pew Bible if you didn't bring one. And we're going to be in Mark 4, 35 to 41. Uh, You'll remember this is the story where Jesus leads his disciples into a storm, which he subsequently calms by his very word. That's what we're going to be tonight. And what we're going to see is really that each of us, a lot like Jack and the disciples, when confronted by the fears of this life, uh, we have our fight-flight response kick in. Uh, We tend to want to run from suffering. 
We tend to want to do whatever it is to, to, that we need to to make suffering uh, alleviate. Uh, but here what we're going to see is, is that there are no protective orbs against that. It is the unanimous testimony of the New Testament that we will face fearful sufferings in this life and all of their various permutations from now into the glory of Jesus pierces the clouds in his second coming. See, that's why I believe Peter says, and we think Peter probably, Mark probably wrote this gospel from Peter's sermons. And he says, Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. So let me ask you, when you, when you hear that, when fear, fiery trials come upon you, do they surprise you? Do they feel strange? Well, they do me. And, and the disciples of Jesus have been surprised in Mark by the sufferings and danger that they have faced from the beginning up to Mark 4. Now, if you are struggling with being controlled by fear or in your suffering this evening, uh, we want you to know that you have good news from the gospel. See, Jesus silences earthly fears and brings peace with God. I think that's what we're going to see in Mark 4, 35 to 41. We're going to see that Jesus silences earthly fears and brings peace with God. Now, we'll see this first in uh, verses 35 to 37, so look there with me. And here what we're going to see is, is that following Jesus will take you to dangerous places. Following Jesus will take you to dangerous places. Uh, look with me again in, in Mark chapter 4, uh, beginning at verse 35. Here's what the word of the Lord says. On that day when evening had come, uh, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. Now, I'm not saying that you have to look for them. I'm not saying that you need to seek out sufferings. They will find you. If you are uh, here this evening and you are a, a non-Christian or a new Christian, I don't want you to miss this. Following Jesus is simultaneously the safest and most dangerous calling in the world. And don't be surprised when following Jesus leads you to face and confront some of your greatest fears. See, that's exactly what happens to the first disciples. After a long day of teaching, and as soon as they have so shoved off on shore, from shore, onto the Sea of Galilee, in verses 35 to 37, we find here that they are confronted with fear. Uh, you'll notice again that Jesus says, on that day, when evening had come, he tells them, let us go across to the other side. He tells them to do this. Now, they are on the Sea of Galilee. This is the deepest freshwater lake in the world. Uh, it is deep. It is, the, it is the, the, the body of water that they use for fresh water. It is the body of water that they use for sustenance, for their work, for their livelihood. They knew this lake intimately. It is surrounded by hills forming a kind of amphitheater. If you've ever been there, you've seen it. Great for, for speaking into that area. But here what we find is the Sea of Galilee also had simultaneously earned a reputation for being dangerous. It was notorious for being horrific. In fact, sometimes they would find that 70 mile an hour hurricane-like winds would erupt out of nowhere, creating uh, waves that sometimes would be as high as five to 10 feet tall. Now, I, I was in Florida for a while, so I'm a little bit familiar with 
uh, waves or, or, or with uh, hurricane winds and how fast winds have to be to actually make it onto the hurricane scale. And what we know is, is that uh, a hurricane is usually somewhere between like 75 and 95 miles per hour. So if you're thinking about that, it's possible that some of these winds would be near hurricane strength coming in upon them in this little 12-person or 15-passenger boat. Just think about that. Facing this thing. Wouldn't that be terrifying to be on a boat in the middle of a hurricane? Let me ask you a quick question. You ever asked how the disciples actually got into the midst of that hurricane? I know some of you are thinking, well, it was a boat, duh. That's how they got in the middle of it. Yeah, that's true. But what we also know here as we look at this is that it was Jesus who led them directly into the heart of the storm. Now, why do you think that Jesus would do that? Now, here's a tip. I don't think it's because Jesus is a carpenter and not a fisherman. It's not that Jesus didn't know any better. I mean, Jesus here, as always, was both fully God, and, and here has become also fully man. He knew their route. He knew that they would encounter the storm. And I don't want us to miss this important detail. See, the storm the disciples faced that day didn't represent an unforeseen interruption in what Jesus expected to be a smooth trip from one side of the, the lake to the other. So hear me, the, the storm, I believe, was the main point of Jesus' journey on that day. And catch this. Jesus knew the disciples would see him more clearly in the eye of that deadly storm than they'd ever see him on the peaceful shores of Capernaum. But he wanted to draw them in close so that they would see him clearly. And whether we like it or not, I believe that still rings true today. We see Jesus more clearly in the fearful storms of life than we do on the peaceful shores of our daily lives. See, it's not that he's more visible when he's there amidst the storm that he normally is, it's that we're looking harder and trusting Christ with our lives promises to take us to dangerous places. You know, Christians often speak about this reality where God's ability um, has the ability to take us through any storm, uh, hell or high water, and bring us through it. Uh, and, and let me just testify today that I have experienced the truthfulness of that. God is faithful. He will hold us fast. He will bring us through. And I love the promise that Jesus makes to believers in John 10, 28 to 29, where he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And now one is able to snatch, not one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. But what an image of eternal security. I mean, just think about what we see here in this text. We see that we are promised in John that we, we are told that Jesus, the good shepherd, has a, a white-knuckled grip on the Christian, that none can snatch them away from his hand. And if that's not bringing you enough confidence, he says it's not just Christ that has you, God the Father himself has Christ in you in his hand as well. I mean, who is going to take you out of the omnipotent grip of both Jesus and God the Father? But don't miss this. The same Jesus that will lead us through the storms of this life, he will also lead us to the storms of this life. It's just like my wife Carrie experienced when she led Jack through scary circumstances. See, Jesus will not only lead us through terrifying circumstances, he will actually lead us to them and catch this. I don't know all of the reasons 
following Jesus leads us into the fearful realities and sufferings of this life. Uh, You've probably experienced some of these. Cancer, hurricanes that come upon you like sickness or, or actual little, literal hurricanes and natural disasters or maybe you've lost a child or a spouse. You, you're lonely. I don't know what it is, but there's some kind of suffering that has come upon you and, and God, we know, is wise beyond all of our collective wisdom and there's a reason, but I, I don't know that we know all of the reasons. I believe there are a few reasons, though, that he gives us in his word, that he gives us to, takes us to dangerous places. One is because there's no place on the face of this earth that we can hide from the brokenness and fallenness of this world. It doesn't matter where you go. It doesn't matter how far into space you travel. It doesn't matter how deep into the sea that you, you go to look. You will never be able to escape the brokennesses of this world. And here's the problem. If you find the place that is free from the broken of this world, you've probably taken the brokenness of this world there with you. We live in a world that is utterly broken. We cannot escape it. Uh, Second, I believe that it is to remind us that our story doesn't end here. This is just the beginning. Uh, We need to be constantly reminded that this is not the end. It is the beginning. Uh, God is doing something much larger than just our personal suffering in the moment. And third, between now and then, when Jesus gets back, he will never let us go. So don't let go of Jesus. Right? See, Jesus brings us to the storms of this life because that's where we grip his hand with the intensity that our neediness demands. Jesus says to you and to me what John Calvin says that God said to Abram when he called him to leave everything he knew in Genesis 12 and to follow him. He told him essentially, John Calvin says, I want you to close your eyes and take my hand. Close your eyes and take my hand. Don't look at what you're leaving. Don't fear what you see as you are walking. Don't look at what you're walking into. Trust the voice of God and take the hand of God. That's what God calls us to do. But there's a second thing that we see here in this text. That's this. Faithless fear says Jesus doesn't care. Did you know that God cares? It's a faithless fear that says he doesn't. Uh, You may remember that at least four of the disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were all fishermen. And they were experts on the Sea of Galilee, familiar with these storms. And and, and they were familiar and experienced in facing them. Uh, But as those fishermen, those seasoned veterans of the sea, are in the midst of the storm, isn't it interesting that chaos broke out and the waves began to beat on the boat, back and forth, flooding the deck as the steering wheel is in the background spinning uncontrollably. When one of the disciples, you'll notice, decides that he's going to take a head count, right? And I mean, you can just imagine this scene. Everybody is losing their minds about the chaos that's breaking out. And they essentially have someone decide, well, we need to count and make sure everybody's here. If we're going to drown together, let's make sure everybody's awake for this, right? And in verse 38, Jesus, we are told, was where? In the stern, sleeping on a, I love this, on a cushion, (laughs) right? Because if you're taking count, you need to take notes of those details. And the disciples woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Don't underestimate the ferocity of this storm. Uh, I believe the disciples themselves give us a picture into just how bad things have gotten. And just imagine this. 
These seasoned veterans are here, and they are scared. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm on a plane, and the, the man next to me begins to, to sort of grip his chair with, with such intensity that you see it sort of indenting the hard plastic, that doesn't really make me that nervous. I'm used to that. Uh, when the lady next to me starts like sort of nervously panting when we're taking off, that doesn't scare me. But if at any point in the journey, the stewardess gets up and begins to scream and cry and scurries to the back and grabs the last, uh, the last uh, safety device and jumps out, I know there's going to be a problem, right? Why? Well, it's because she understands a plane. She understands what it means for her, for the plane to be in a safe place and when it's not. But here what we find is, is that these seasoned sailors are terrified for their lives in the midst of this journey. Uh, I think this tells us that this was a very scary event. It was terrifying. Now, here what we find is, is that Jesus is in the back of the boat while all of these professional fear, uh, fishermen who were familiar with this lake were scared of drowning. And you know the danger had to be significant when the fishermen looked to the carpenter for safety, right? And Jesus is kicked back catching some Z's on a cushion. Now I know that we all want a fearless leader, but I think this is a little too fearless for the disciples' taste. Now I know some of you right here are like really encouraged because you're like, I always thought I was like Jesus, right? I too can sleep anywhere. But here what we find is is this situation where, where Jesus, Jesus is in the boat. He is uh, there with the disciples and they are fearful. I'm just curious if you've ever had this kind of experience where you have been so scared that your heart felt like it just kind of jumped out of your chest and landed on the table beating in front of you. You know, maybe it was a, a conversation with the boss where he fired you and you just weren't expecting it. Or maybe your mom died, or you, you found out someone may have abused your child, or, or your wife has, has told you that she's just done. Like those are the kind of events that can terrify you. And don't miss this. In those moments, some of us, if we're honest, know that some of the first places our minds go is to start to question whether or not Jesus is asleep in the bottom of the boat of our lives. You know, our, our minds are reeling like the wheel of that boat that Jesus was on, and we're wondering, where is he? I don't miss this. Some say that we, <clears throat> some say that we don't say what we mean when we are scared, when we face suffering. And, and I want to be really clear. I, I believe there's some truth to that. Sometimes when, when suffering hits, we don't necessarily say the things that are truly like us normally or of us. But if we're really honest, sometimes it's before the terrifying storms of this life that come upon us that we actually say what we truly believe about God, ourselves, and others, e either in all of its powerful, frail beauty or in all of its ugliness. That's where we begin to see the reality of our hearts. That's where our hearts reveal that we're putting our confidence in fake news rather than the good news. Now just notice the disciples' hard hearts are on display here as they ask a question that me or you would probably ask as well. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now maybe you're asking some variation of this question tonight amidst the great and more subtle fears of your life. Maybe you're asking yourself right now, Jesus, do you care if I drown? 
Because it feels a, a little bit like Jesus right now is asleep in the back of the boat of your life in the midst of your storm. And I, I've experienced this a lot with, with folks. I've experienced this in my own personal life. Uh, it wasn't uh, five years ago that I found out that my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. And so we went through a season, we had just had our third child, uh, as soon as we had the child we found out she had cancer, and, and we went through this season where we thought that she was going to die, and it was in the midst of that, as, as we were going through that, I remember there were nights where we were just in bed, uh, we were crying that prayer that we needed the Holy Spirit fully engaged to interpret because we did not know what to say, and, and it was in that moment that, that the one thing that came from our lips was, Jesus, help. We needed Christ's help, and we prayed that. That was all that we knew to say. We tried to reason, is, is, is God really here? Is he, is he asleep in the moment? We have good theology, but in the fearful moment of that experience, we were desperate for Jesus in a way we'd never been before. I've been able to walk through a number of tragedies and struggles with others. I, I was uh, in, a, in a church pastoring when we went through the recession of 2008, 2009 and had people losing their jobs everywhere, constantly confronted with folks who were losing their jobs on, uh, so on Friday uh, afternoon and then coming to church on Sunday morning, uh, letting us know and desperate for answers, like, where's Jesus in this? I've lost my retirement, I lost my job, I don't know what I'm going to do. And in those moments, some of them were asking, does Jesus really care if I drown? Now, maybe for you, it's something else. Maybe you're facing more subtle psychological fears, like knowing that you lost your wife because you were too proud and cruel or neglectful. Or, or the fear of a grandparent over what kind of legacy that you're going to leave behind for your kids or grandkids. Or, or maybe the fear of an abusive parent to you in the past. Maybe it's the fear of being alone and unloved until you die. And when confronted by your fears, I'm just asking you, what is it that comes out of your heart? Are you actually crying out to God, Jesus, do you care if I drown? Well, brothers and sisters, I want you to be encouraged to know that God does care. and Jesus does care that you drown. But have you ever asked this question? I mean, we will get to Jesus' answer in just a minute, but for now, can we admit our fearful questions amidst suffering really do tell us something more about our hearts than it does our God? Like, we see who we are in those moments, and our fears can tell us about what or who truly reigns in our hearts and that's controlling us. So the storms of this life are what send us looking for Jesus in the back of the boat. And don't miss this. Our fears say much more about our love for Jesus than Jesus' love for us. Now, you need to write that down. Uh, our fears say much more about our love for Jesus than Jesus' love for us. See, the Bible seems to think that we actually care enough about ourselves naturally, that we don't need help in that, and that we are actually needy and desperate and then we need to actually be pushed to think more outwardly about Christ and others. So we are constantly encouraged to repent of self-centeredness that can be emphatically exposed in the white hot heat of our darkest fears coming to life. And we want, if you're anything like me, a hall pass for what comes out of our hearts in the face of our fears. But here's the reality. The great physician doesn't hand out doctor's notes to pass us on the school of suffering. We all must face suffering. Did you know, though, Jesus' response 
to the disciples as they're questioning whether or not Jesus, is, Jesus cares for them in verses 39 to 41? It's not quite the response that you'd expect. There we see that he said, we find that the, the fear of the Lord, third, the fear of the Lord cast out fears in verses 39 to 41. Now here Jesus doesn't actually answer the disciples' question directly. Teacher, do you care if we drown? Instead, he does something, and notice what he does in verse 39. Look there with me in your copy of God's Word. Here's what it says. It says, And he awoke, being Jesus, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, as we look at this, Jesus has already made magnificent, amazing displays of his power. Uh, we've already seen him heal the sick. Uh, to this point, we've seen him uh, remove demons from others. He, he's shown himself to be powerful. But here, do you see the unique power that's on display? As the, way, the wind wails and the waves rage, Jesus rebukes the wind saying, quiet, and the waves saying, be still. And both of them, catch this, they stop in their tracks like trained dogs. Now, who has that kind of authority? Ever been hanging out with somebody and you're like, the wind's a little bit strong, could you stop that? And he rebukes it and it stops? We've never seen that. They've never seen that. This is a unique kind of authority and power. Who does that kind of thing? Well, here's the answer. God does. And why does it say that he rebukes the wind and the waves? Why is that? Why does he do this? Well, see, I believe it's because Jesus has actually come to undo the deeds of Satan and all of his devices, including using storms to afflict God's people. And Jesus pushes back sickness, demons, and catastrophes as a, a small keyhole-like glimpse of the future that he is ushering in that will un, uh, undo all of the effects of the fall. So here we get a glimpse of the future that Jesus is going to bring in with his death and his resurrection. He is going to restore all things. And here we get just a glimpse of the power of Jesus Christ to do that. And then Jesus turns and asks them, why are you so afraid? In verse 40, very important word. Why are you so afraid? A word that here seems to mean cowardly. Why is it that you are so cowardly before this hurricane in your boat? Now, it's fascinating. If you, if you thought they were afraid during the storm in verse 40, once they see Jesus go dog whisper on the wind and the waves, and commands them to sit, and they obey. Verse 41 says they were filled with great fear. Now, the English, I don't think, really quite displays what's going on here with this great fear. It's, it says really something like, having fear come upon them, they feared exceedingly greatly. He, he actually takes two words for fear, a verb and a noun, and then he adds on to the end of it an adjective, right? And so the, the first verb, he was afraid, he feared. The second is a noun, really fearful. Now that intensifies the fear, but then he says if that's not enough, he adds mega, an adjective to the end to say he was really fearfully feared, he was really just freaked out, right? He was scared. They were scared in a way that is not comparable to the way they were scared before the hurricane. So Jesus speaking of this text, speaking of this text, 
I love what we see here. They were mega scared squared. And what is more fearsome than riding a boat into a hurricane? The power of Jesus. I love what John MacArthur says about this. He says, the only thing worse than having a storm outside of your boat is having God in your boat. (laughs) That's an occasion to be fearful of. The transcendent God drew near to the disciples in a small boat to respond to their question with a question. Do you still have no faith after this? Now don't miss this. For Jesus, their fear was an issue of faith. Did you catch that? Did they understand that Jesus was true God and sovereign over the waves? But hang on. I believe there's a high probability that Mark actually here wants to drive our attention in this narrative, in this story, to another biblical story, the the story of Jonah. Now, the reason I say that is I I did a a textual analysis of this in the Greek. In other words, I, I looked at what it looked like in the New Testament Greek, and then I looked at the Old Testament Greek version. And I looked at the flow of the text. It's, it's, it's impressive. You know the story of Jonah. Jonah, uh, we have in this story that, that he is running from God. He jumps on a boat, right? And then once he jumps on the boat, he's sailing away with these uh, other pagan men. They do not believe in God. And as they're going away, a storm comes upon them. And they are fearful over this storm. And where's Jonah? Asleep in the boat. Sound familiar? And in the midst of that, as he's asleep in the boat, what we find is, is they come and they awaken him. And in, when they awaken him, they say, who is your God? We cast lots and it must be your God. And Jonah says, it's Yahweh. And then we're told that they were really, really, really scared. Now here's what's fascinating. Twice in, verse, in Jonah 1.10 and Jonah 1.16, the same phrase exactly is, uh, is said where he was like, you know, mega, square, mega scared squared. Like we were just terrified. That same phrase that we find in Mark 4 is there twice in verse 10 and 16. And what I think that tells us is, is that here we have a picture, a picture of Jonah and Jesus. But, but as we see this picture, I don't think this text is telling us that Jesus is Jonah. Now, that's not what's going on. They were exceedingly, they were filled uh, with exceedingly great fear, like in Jonah, but there was something great, much different that's going on here. Because you'll remember that in Jonah 2, the fish actually swallows him, and after he swallows him in Jonah 2, he prays, and he says, uh, the Lord is salvation, and and he says, it says that he cried, or he prayed out from this fish, from Sheol, which is a a word that speaks of the land of the dead, And, and then he says, because of this, after he spit out, salvation belongs to the Lord, right? Here what we see is, I think we see a couple of realities here. First, we see between Jonah and Jesus here, the identity of Jesus, The identity of Jesus. See, Jesus is greater than Jonah, that's true. But more than that, he's sovereign God. See, there's no storm that Jesus can't stop. In fact, the thing that really terrifies the people in Jonah, these these non-believers, is that they recognize that this is Yahweh that has done this. But here, notice, it's not Yahweh that has brought the storm upon them that has that kind of power and authority. It is Jesus that is able to stop the storm and has authority over it. Jonah doesn't do that. Jesus does that. Jesus does that because Jesus is God. But there's a second thing. Notice that Jesus arrests the disciples' attention from the storm because they're all, they're all about this storm, right? They're terrified. 
But he arrests their attention from the storm just as God did to the pagans. The fear of the Lord, this fear that they had, the disciples and these pagans, uh, is really a, another word that speaks of uh, the fact that they should have faith. Fear of the Lord is a way to describe faith in God. And faith trusts that Jesus is king. See, we don't fear him as a monster, but as a mighty warrior who has power, not just over this world, but over the world to come. Now, why does Jesus shift the conversation from fear to faith? It's the fear of the Lord that dispels all other fears and frees us from the tyrants that we treat as gods. There's a third thing I think that we see here in, in this little episode that's like Jonah. It's the fear of the Lord is all of grace. See, Jesus would later fully answer the disciples' question. They're asking Jesus, do you care if we drown? Uh, he answers Jesus, do you care if we drown at the cross? See, Jesus wasn't thrown in. He wasn't thrown in to save them. Now, he stopped the storm, but later he jumped into the wrath of God for you and me. And three days later, God was raised. He raised Jesus from the dead to announce that Jesus has brought you and me peace with God. It's the fear of the Lord that silences our mutinous hearts that look to dethrone God and leads us to death. You know, another sailor who became a pastor, John Newton, wrote Amazing Grace. And I love the second stanza. You probably know the second stanza. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. See, God's grace in Christ silences earthly fears and brings us peace with God. Now, let me close with some quick practical applications on how this applies to our suffering. I want to just give you some practical applications of the way that we should be thinking about suffering. These these are just some ways that, that I've thought about suffering is uh, over the past 10 years I've, I've had experiences with my wife um, having cancer, losing it, uh, getting rid of it, and then uh, getting it again. Experience of having a pastor friend of mine die uh, at 32 and then having to lead a church through that and um, having to, to help and encourage his wife and their kids and uh, having my wife's dad, who we loved, who was a spiritual leader in our family, die. We've been through all kinds of different sufferings and uh, these are ways that we have thought through this that I hope are encouraging to you. Number one, suffering apart from Christ is hopeless. Suffering apart from Christ is hopeless. In other words, the Bible, you can read this beginning to end, friend, it is no hope for those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. There is no meaning for suffering that is given to those of you who have not put your faith in Jesus. And the disciples were saved from the storm, but they still would face death and judgment. They needed something more than a hurricane being stopped for them. They needed the wrath of God to be pushed back. And Jesus did. He accomplished that for you and me on the cross. And if you have not put your faith in Jesus, what that means is, is that you need to do that today to, to escape the wrath of God, the just wrath of God, because we are sinners before a holy and righteous God. And apart from faith in Jesus, dying for our sins and being raised from the dead, Jesus teaches that the suffering of this life and all that we fear only is amplified in the life to come in hell, which I take as eternal conscious suffering. So what is to come, if you've not put your faith in Christ, is worse than anything that you fear right now.
Don't leave without putting your faith in Christ. I would love nothing more than to talk to you about that if that's you here today. If you have a friend that drug you, then your friend ought to talk to you in the car all the way home about how you should put your faith in Jesus. If you're that friend, be a good friend. Second, sufferers need to study the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love the quote by Charles Spurgeon where he tells us that we need to abide close to the cross and study the mystery of his wounds. What a great encouragement for all of us. See, we need to meditate on Jesus. We need to meditate on the cross and his resurrection and what the implications of that are for you and me. If we are living in suffering or fear, we need more of Jesus. What does that mean? Well, maybe you're suffering and you're asking yourself, maybe it's because God doesn't love me, right? Maybe you're the sick man in John 9. Whose sin was it that brought this upon him, yours or someone else's? And maybe you're thinking that's you, that you've sinned in some way that has brought God's anger against you in this sickness or in this suffering. And it's in those moments that you need to be reminded that God has sealed, He has promised, He has set forth clearly His affection for you in a way that could not be more clear. He gave you His Son who gave His life for you. Why did He do that? Because He loves you. See, studying the mystery of the wounds of Christ reminds you of that. Maybe it's that you're thinking to yourself, God doesn't love me because I've sinned in some way that cannot be forgiven. And you need to be reminded of what Christ's death on the cross for your sins means for you. He died on the cross for all of your sins. And whatever sin is that's plaguing you and making you think that it has control over you, uh, he has absolutely made it powerless at the cross through his death on your behalf. He has freed you from that sin. That sin no longer has the power that it had on you because Jesus is now Lord of your life. He has authority over your life in a way that none else does. We need to study the mysteries of his wounds. Three, suffering, remember this, it identifies you with Christ, but it's not your identity. Suffering identifies you with Christ, but it's not your identity. It's easy in your suffering to think of yourself as the one who suffers, that is such a problem that causes so many difficulties to other, the one that can't quite be used by God in the way that you wish that you could be used. And so 1 Peter 4.12 says, Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You might say, what does that have to do with my identity? Well, he says, if suffering comes upon you, it's not a strange thing. It comes with being in Christ. Maybe this evening you're thinking to yourself, I feel like Christianity was just going to be something different than what it feels like. I didn't think it was going to be hard. I thought things were going to get easier. But things have gotten harder, not easier, since I put my faith in Jesus. And yet, first Peter comes in and he says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as though something strange were happening to you. Let me just ask you, do you ever feel surprised by suffering? I do. Like my natural knee-jerk reaction is, this isn't the way things are supposed to be. Ever been surprised? Ever felt like it was strange that you were suffering? Like, I, I don't know what it is, but I don't think it's supposed to be this way. Friends, that's not a new thing. Like first century Christianity needed to be reminded not to be surprised, not to feel as though it was strange to suffer as a Christian. Have you ever felt surprised by suffering? I do. And I think that Peter wants his people here to know that their identity in the book of 1 Peter isn't tied to the temple that they are separated from. 
Their identity is also simultaneously not tied up in their sufferings. Their identity is with Christ. And it's not their sufferings that frame their identity. Their identity is wrapped up in Christ. One day, what we know is their various trials and sufferings, whatever they might be, will be removed when Jesus comes back. Your sufferings will be there no more. And then your identity as it is now will be identified by the fact that you have either put your faith in Christ or you have not. And if you have, then you will be seen then as now as a child of God, a God who is for you in every way, even to the point of death, death even on a cross. And that's how God is for you. Our identity not wrapped up in our sufferings, but it is part of our identification with Jesus. And until then, when Jesus comes back, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Don't, don't take your hand off the boat whenever things get hard. Be faithful and follow Jesus. Four, suffering Christians need to lament. Suffering Christians need to lament. You know, we have an internship here where we have interns uh, every year who are stuttering, studying for, not stuttering, sometimes they do stutter like me. Yeah, that's what we train them to do. But they study, they study uh, all kinds of things. One of the things they study is how to lead the church and how we should think about our church services. And we have them read one article by Carl Truman called What Miserable Christians Sing. Doesn't that sound encouraging? Yeah, What Miserable Christians Sing. Has a really nice ring, doesn't it? But the point of the article is that we need to confess sins publicly and lament. Now, why do we need to do that? See, I believe that we need to weep with those who weep, but we also need to weep. And here's the reason. Because we suffer in this life. And to sing like heaven has already arrived and everything is awesome, you know, like the Lego song, just isn't the reality that we live in. And to pretend like it's that, some kind of triumphalistic, like we just always win, that's just not the story that we experience now. If that were the story, we wouldn't need God's glory to descend and make things right. But the reality is we do. We need space for God's grace to visit those who suffer in our services. I love that Malachi leads us in doing that at our church. I hope that your church is doing that. Encourage the leadership to give space to lament. Lament the tragedies and trials that face you. And if you're struggling to do that, look up some lament psalms. See how the psalmists did it. They did it the best. They lamented well. And then, of course, Jeremiah, who Rich mentioned earlier, who likes to cry all the time. Look at him. He has a book on it. But individually, I've prayed myself these kinds of lamentations. Maybe you have too. You've had some kind of horrible experience with your family, some incredible loss. Have you ever been this person who's lamented? Who at home, in the darkness of night, you're curled up and you're weeping out before God, asking for His help, and, and things just don't make sense and you're lamenting and you don't know how to frame it or explain it or understand it theologically, but you just want to cry out to God as your Father? Friends, that's something that's individual, but it's also something that we need to do corporately as a family of God. And finally, fifth, suffering needs to keep two days in mind. Two days in mind. My, my wife, this is a favorite saying of hers, is she is brave and a warrior and goes through suffering every day in ways that I don't know how she does. And she says, we need to remember two days, today and the last day. Encouraged to her by another woman who had cancer and died, but encouraged her in this walk. And my wife says, this is what keeps her going on many days. 
What does that mean? Well, uh, we, we need to remember today, and, and we know what Jesus says about today. It's the day that we need to be thinking about, right? Uh, Matthew 6.34, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Well, think about tomorrow, and you think about today. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. See, we don't think about what happens if my, my wife's medicine doesn't work tomorrow. We don't think about that. We think about today and, and being faithful. We don't think about tomorrow if we don't have enough money for food, right? We don't think about uh, tomorrow and like, what if like a car were just to like drive right into our house and kill us all? We don't do that. We're not conspiracy theorists. We're not trying to make today as bad as possible by like dreaming up how bad things could be. No, we keep our focus on today and what God has given us, the goodness that He's given us, and we deal with the struggles that come our way in a faithful way while doing good. And to deal with the problems of that day or what we call to, not the problems that tomorrow might bring. Maybe that's you today and you struggle with that anxiety and you just need to be re reminded, just focus on today. See, we won't become conspiracy theorists thinking the world will become as horrible as it possibly can. It may. But Jesus wins in the end, right? So we, we focus on today. The other day that we focus on is the last day. Uh, did you know the New Testament is just like uh, unrelentlessly eschatological? Uh, as you read through the New Testament, it is hard to find texts that are not constantly pushing us to look forward to a great day that's coming where Jesus is going to restore and set things right. 1 Peter ends in 5.10, his book saying, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Wouldn't that be just a great day? Wouldn't you like that to come? Like, I would love uh, for Jesus himself to come in his glory and for God himself to restore, confirm that we've made it, strengthen me with strength that only he can provide, and establish us in a way that only he can forever. And then he goes off into praise, saying, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here's the good news of the Bible. This experience that you're having right now is actually the basement, not the ceiling, of the experience that God has for you. Like whatever, I don't care how good it is, I don't care how bad it is, this is the basement. It doesn't compare what Christ has prepared for you and for me. I love what in between, as we live between today and that day that is coming, and all that awaits us. I love what Scottish pastor Horatius Bonner writes. I hope you've uh, read. If you haven't, you should read. If you're suffering when God's little children suffer, when God's little children suffer by Horatius Bonner, it's a book that Carrie's mom gifted to me and her. Uh, actually, she gave it to her, and then I stole it from her. And I read it, and it was great. And this is one of the many quotes, the gold that you'll find in this book. She says, he says this, Every trouble, however light, comes fragrant with blessing. Shall we then overlook it or thrust it away? It is a new opportunity of getting nearer to God and learning more of His love. Brothers and sisters, I hope that that's the trust and the hope and the confidence that you have today. That God is actually working good no matter how dark things seem. The light is coming and the light wins. That's the promise that we have. We will face suffering, but in the end, Jesus will put it to an end and we will reign with Him forever. Let's pray.